Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. Today, you join me on another episode as I continue my journey into the decades of cinema spanning from the 1920s up to the 2010s, where ultimately I aim to create my own personal top 10 picks of films across these decades. So my top 10 picks for films of all time. And in each episode, I will pick five films and my number one pick for each of these episodes will go into the final top 10. And today's episode is the 1960s. I'm just going to jump straight into it. There were so many films that I could have put on this list. But at the same time, I don't regret choosing these films. These films are ones that I personally love from the 1960s. It's not necessarily, again, like any of these episodes going to be matching with what anyone else might think. So just sit back, relax and enjoy my top five recommendations i'm going to be talking about a few plot points here and there talking about what the films are about why i like them a few like moments that i love in particular about them and just sort of generally rating them so here we go guys at number five on my list for my 1960s films is a film released in 1964 by the walt disney pictures company directed by robert stevenson it's very much a film that has got a big history behind it. If you've actually seen the biopic film released in 2013, Saving Mr. Banks, starring Tom Hanks as Walt Disney, and Emma Thompson as the author, P.L. Travers. She is the author of the original Mary Poppins books, and as I just said there, this number five pick is Mary Poppins, the musical Disney extravaganza. Julie Andrews stars as the title character, Mary Poppins, herself the magical nanny who is practically perfect in every way, uh, and alongside Dick Van Dyke, who plays one of her close friends, but who is a jack-of-all-trades kind of guy, and so he's a chimney sweep, that, you know, he's like a ha everyday handyman, so to speak. Dick Van Dyke obviously is American, and Dick Van Dyke's performance as Bert in Mary Poppins is probably one of the highlights from this film as being one of the worst cockney accents that you could ever hear on film especially because it's an american trying to be a cockney it kind of has its own charm to it and i kind of overlook the fact that it's terrible i just enjoyed the story when i watched this film but yeah like i said so it's a disney film it's a live action film as well but it does have some classic walt disney animation in there even though as we if anyone's seen saving mr banks and has researched mary poppins a lot they will know the battles that P.L. Travers had with the studio about the inclusion of animation and cartoons into her book. She wanted it to be fully live action and not animated, whereas obviously Disney can't help himself. You know, there's a bit of magical animation in there, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But Mary Poppins is truly a magical story, as I just said. Mary Poppins is a magical nanny sent from uh, sent from above in the clouds, quite literally. We open the film with Mary Poppins sat on a cloud with her little umbrella, parrot umbrella, uh, which is an, such an iconic thing for Mary Poppins, uh, which they rejuvenate quite interestingly and not too bad in the 2019, I think it's 2019 adaptation, the Mary Poppins Returns, which features Emily Blunt in the role of Mary Poppins. Although, quite frankly, I'll state this now on the record, that Julie Andrews will always be the number one Mary Poppins portrayal on screen. Emily Blunt didn't do a bad job as another version of her, but I would say that Mary Poppins is Julie Andrews, and Julie Andrews is Mary Poppins. Although, I would say as well, another 60s sort of hint, the Sound of Music, it's not on this list, but Julie Andrews basically had two of her biggest hits in the 60s, almost back-to-back, -back, as it were. Because we, I think it's 1965 that one comes out as well, so we have Mary Poppins, 
with Disney, bit of a sing-song, and then more sing-song in The Sound of Music as Maria Von Trapp. Ultimately, though, I think Mary Poppins will resonate with so many people because it's such a children's classic and something that I'm sure even parents can watch these days and think, yeah, it's an easy film to watch. It's set in 1910, so Edwardian London. So there's a family called the Bankses, so Mr. and Mrs. Banks and their children, Michael and Jane. They basically go through nannies like no show <laughs> and they end up looking for another one. There's actually a letter written by the children that specifies what the nanny should be. And all these things, like it gets torn up by Mr. Banks at one point, but all these things get sort of fulfilled by Mary Poppins and she appears as if by magic. So, and that's one of the things, Mary Poppins is very much the precursor, both the books and this film are very much the precursor to the Nanny McPhee films as well, uh, starring Emma Thompson. Ironically, who's in Saving Mr. Banks? But I would say this is the foundation for that kind of magical nanny, family in need, in comes the super nanny. <laughs> uh, but I would say with Mary Poppins, it's not what the author wanted. So P.L. Travers wasn't keen on the musical idea. She wasn't keen on animation and cartoons and such. She wanted live action, proper, a proper actual depiction of her character. Even though a lot of there are some song-like words in the books, she was like, oh, they're just poems, they're rhymes, they're not songs, but... You know, ultimately, Disney, when they go live action, they went really big with the Technicolor. It's bright and colourful, and the songs are just brilliant. I mean, some of the songs, just to note, really are, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. See, even when I say them, I start to sing them. <laughs> Badly, admittedly. But I just think, you know, spoonful of sugar, jolly holiday. I And this sort of brings me on to my point about why I think it's such a easy-to-watch film, because it's very well made. And very well crafted because the new version tries to capture the rawness of the original we have the likes of uh, the animated sequence where they go in into the ceramic bowl in the new one that was originally based on the jolly holiday sequence where mary poppins michael and jane and bert all jump into a street painting that's on a, sl a pavement slab they jump into it and they are in this cartoon world they meet all these animated characters which which are very disney-esque you know and they specifically jolly holiday the song is a sort of uplifting song then shall we say uh, it's just really fun and we see obviously dick van dyke getting to do a bit of dancing and you know he he's such a showman dick van dyke and the fact that he made a return and did a really good like a little mini routine as well in the new version of mary poppins like he's always been a showman from day one and i just genuinely think he does a great job in this even though his accent's a bit off that's kind of the one thing that will sort of mark this film for life is the terrible cockney accent but overall i would say you know it's a really enjoyable film but yeah like i said mary poppins comes to help the bankses as their new nanny in edwardian london at number 17 cherry tree lane as pl travers would have us say because you know it's not 17 cherry tree lane it's got to be number <laughs> a very proper english because she was very particular about that sort of thing as well if you believe the depiction of recordings that you hear of her and also the way she's depicted in the biopic but then we have so dick van dyke does a brilliant sort of double act with mary poppins it's almost you think mary poppins is this magical being and Dick Van Dyke's character of Bert, you think he would be as well, but no, he's just an everyday man that was very close with her and really good friends with her. And there's no romantic element in there as such. There's a little bit hinted in there, but I know the author didn't want that to come across as much. Uh, and then Dick Van Dyke also plays Mr. Dawes Sr., the old director of the bank where Mr. Banks works. And I think that the use of a dual role 
really enables, even though there's a bad accent from Dick Van Dyke on one hand, he's able to really stretch his acting range. And I, I genuinely think it's a sincere performance by him as well. You know, it's the 60s, it's Technicolor. And also another, because I mentioned The Spoonful of Sugar and Jolly Holiday, which both involve obviously Mary Poppins in some respect, and she's there. And you've got Dick Van Dyke involved in the Jolly Holiday sequence. I would say in reference to Dick Van Dyke, one highlight for me personally is the song Step in Time, where he leads a group of chimney sweeps across the rooftops of London. And it's so beautiful. It's kind of it's beautifully shot, really, because they're all silhouetted. You see their silhouettes up against the nighttime sky. And there's a lovely bit where Mary Poppins, she gets involved and she does a little turn, like a little magical turn. And, you know, it's just a piece of fun and i actually think if i remember rightly step in time was one of pl travers's favorite moments in the film she actually did enjoy that moment she didn't enjoy some aspects particularly the cartoons but at the end of the day it's a very enjoyable film song highlights i've mentioned a spoonful of sugar already step in time and obviously probably the long one of the longest words you could ever really imagine to say is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious there you go, see, done it. But then for me, I think the most heartwarming moment of this film is Let's Go Fly a Kite, the song used on the very end of the film. I think there's a beautiful moment before this uh, joyous moment between Mr. Banks and his children. They all come back together and the Mary Poppins' work is done. I do think that there's a lovely shot of Mr. Banks walking out into the middle of the park, uh, just outside where their house is. It's at nighttime, street lamps are beautifully lit. And I think it's all done on a soundstage, if I remember rightly, uh, or at least a backlot of some description. And it's just beautifully shot, I think. Like, it's a Disney film, but I think it's pure cinematic joy, both for kids and adults. So, number five is Mary Poppins, 1964. But moving on to number four, I would say with this one, it's one that I've mentioned before. I'm not going to go into too much detail because I think my friend Billy on the Hitchcock episode covered this quite well and gave us his hot take of who the real psycho is in this film. And like I just said there, the title of this film of pick number four is Psycho, uh, the 1960 Alfred Hitchcock film. It's a black and white film, co-stars Vera Miles along with the brilliant, amazing Janet Leigh. Janet Leigh playing Marion Crane, Vera Miles playing Marion Crane's friend. And Janet Leigh is the one that Ultimately, if you haven't seen the film, I don't know where you've been, but Psycho is she gets killed 30 minutes into the film, pretty much just like a third of the way through the film. And you're like, oh, but we're following her journey. Why did we lose her at the beginning? And it's that was sort of Hitchcock's brilliance in that respect for crafting that plot and that film, doing the unexpected. And obviously, I think we have a lot of Alma Hitchcock, so his wife to thank for that, if you're to believe again like what's been written what's been said and also the biopic Hitchcock with Anthony Hopkins and Helen Mirren in it which basically suggests that Alma helped with that decision to kill Marion Crane off after 30 minutes and it's just a it's a thriller it's it's a horror it's very interesting if you haven't watched it I highly encourage you to watch it if you want to know more about my thoughts on Psycho and particularly my guest Billy's as well on the Hitchcock episode do check that one out so like I said Janet Lee is Marion Crane Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates. I just say that name and I get chills whenever I... Ooh, very creepy. Uh, just, you know, mother. That's all I can say to that really is mother. Bates Motel is probably one of the most famous settings for a classic horror film. 
it's abandoned it's creepy and shot in black and white as well on the U- on the paramount back lot it still stands up to this day even as a film that it's way it's 60 years old now uh, as of the recording of this episode and it still stands up as a all-time classic for me it'll always be one of my favorite hitchcock films it's not my favorite film of the 60s but i couldn't not mention psycho in this list because it's amazing pitch perfect performances anthony perkins the way he is so poised and really sort of it's like he's always watching you it's very links and one of my sort of one of the highlights from psycho there's the moment where He's peeking through that peephole, which links in from his office into Marion Crane's room, where he's basically spying on her. And I just think that the way he is acting when he's in front of someone, he's kind of dead behind the eyes. But at the same time, it's like they're always active. They're always watching you, always watching for something to happen and being ready to pounce as it were and that kind of relates nicely to what happens later on in the film that his reflexes are sort of half and half really he's on one hand he's very shy and timid in some respects and you know he's under his mother's thumb but at the same time he's a killer essentially he's a he's the psycho of the story although like i said if you listen to billy in my episode (laughs) we all know who the real psycho is (laughs) and i'll let you check that episode out for yourselves but uh in terms of the iconic moments the way it was shot in black and white approaching the bates motel for the first time is probably one of my key moments that i really think about when it comes to the film and the way it's shot and the ominous look of the bates house up on the hill above the motel that's something i like but it has to be the obvious, the shower scene. The shower scene is the obvious, so the black and white look of it all really helps it because it's quite bright because we've got the white walls of the shower and then that ominous figure, which is actually, it's not even who it actually turns out to be. It's just somebody dressed up completely all black, like I think it's like a black stocking of some kind and jumper and everything, holding a knife, menacing Marion Crane. And that sequence obviously is very famous in film history for the first scene to actually show a toilet being flushed on screen as well prior to that and just showing a toilet on screen in general because you don't normally see that kind of thing. The other thing as well, it was shot in such a clever way that you imagine that you see the knife go into Marion Crane's body, but at the same time you don't because the way it's been cut together, it's been masterfully crafted to make sure that it's tricking you into thinking that you saw something that you didn't. And that is also helped by Bernard Herrmann's score, those screeching sounds that if i mention them now i'm sure you're gonna you can think about what they are and you can hear them just now the epitome of intense suspense and shock value and i would like to watch psycho in an actual cinema with a big audience in like for the first time as well to see what my reaction would have been to that shower scene and see would it have shocked me would it have scared me much because I didn't have the full cinematic experience when I watched this the first time because I watched it on a TV screen at home. But equally, I thought it was very impressive in the way that it was shot because I genuinely thought that she was actually stabbed with the knife. I thought that must have been painful. But when you learn about the editing of it, it's truly a masterclass in how to craft a film. So that is why, you know, Psycho, number four in my list of the 1960s. But moving on to a slightly more different film, my pick at number three is a Stanley Kubrick, one of the earliest works of Stanley Kubrick when he started to get noticed. Previously, also in the 1960s, you had the 1962 film Lolita, uh, the adaptation of the controversial novel, and the film was equally controversial as well. The 
film that I'm going to mention, though, is the late 60s, and it's when Stanley Kubrick really finds his sort of niche, then his style of directing, he really gets into it. The one-point perspective shots, the way he crafts shots like a painter, everything looks so well positioned and everything's there for a reason in the frame and everything's well crafted and a lot of this was very good for its time because of the special effects involved and the film i'm talking about is 2001 a space odyssey released in 1968 now you got to think about this this is the late 60s this was made and released and some of the special effects in it my god they just blow my mind i could do a whole episode on 2001 a space odyssey if i'm honest Whilst yes, I think it's a slow, it is a slow burner. It's very slow. It's a long film for what it is, uh, and there's not a lot that goes on. But at the same time, a lot is said with it, because this film was made in collaboration with a man called Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote the book version of it as well. And Kubrick had help from him to be really on the ball with the scientific sort of things. Of you know, it's not we don't know it's real, but this could be real. And the visuals of 2001 Space Odyssey is probably why I picked it to be my one of my top five picks. Because it's so ahead of its time. It inspired the likes of Star Wars, Star Trek, Doctor Who. Any sci-fi franchise that you can think of to this day is influenced by 2001 Space Odyssey. We stand on the shoulders of Kubrick in that respect. You know, Kubrick did some weird films and I'm not going to say I liked all of them. There are some films which are just really weird and strange and really out there but this one whilst it is strange and out there i rank it because it's such a brilliantly told story from the perspective that although there's not much in terms of plot as such because we kind of get three separate stories essentially we open up with this beautiful shot that you see the sun over the earth and you know you get this lovely space vista then we see the development of early man and how man comes into contact with a black monolith a strange object which we later learn is from outer space or from beyond the reaches of time and space itself and it helps humankind develop essentially is the general theory that's respected by that and this monolith appears another two times it appears later on the moon and then later on in the conclusion of the film as well uh, so we so we go from a story from the beginning of man and we see this cool jump cut, most jarring jump cut ever, where a ape learns how to destroy something with a bone, and he throws a bone up into the air. And then all of a sudden, just as it comes down, we cut to a spaceship in space, which looks like the bone. It's the most dramatic. That's probably up with a couple of other bits. That's one of the key moments in the film. For me, though, the use of classical music, I appreciate so much because it's a poetic film. It's not got much dialogue in it at all really to be honest there's a little bit of chit chat between the directors of a company in the year 2001 up on this space station there's the epic moment where we see a pen floating which there's a youtube video and some behind scenes stuff out there of how the floating pen was achieved with the air host at well the space hostess then and dr hayward and dave bowman who is played by Keir Duller, and Gary Lockwood plays Frank Poole. They're two space travellers that get sent out to uncover the mystery of a signal which is connected to the black monolith, which is discovered originally on the moon, and then there's more coming from Jupiter. And they go out on this big mission into space, and along the way, their plans get derailed by the HAL 9000, which is voiced by the amazing Douglas Rain. I mean, HAL 9000 
to sort of sum 2001 A Space Odyssey up, HAL 9000 is 2001 A Space Odyssey. The, he's basically, he's a computer that and he's just, we all we ever see him as is this round circle through a bit of glass and a red dot, a red LED light of some kind. And he's just, it looks a bit like a camera iris with a red bulb in it. But honestly, he's got, even that for someone who's, well, I say someone, a computer that's got no personality, he's got a lot of witty sort of mini micro quirks. The way he says things, he plays chess with them. And then obviously, ultimately, the film, if you watch it, you'll discover that things go a bit wrong because of him. He starts to malfunction. And I think Hal, the key favorite quote, obviously, it's the obvious one, but I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. When in response to trying to help sort something out, in response to trying to help a situation with Dave Bowman, it's very chilling and haunting the way that Douglas Rain does those lines and i think he's the standout performer in this film i mean they made a sequel of 2001 a space odyssey 2010 the year we made contact which the lesser known slightly more less revered film as well because it essentially takes what kubrick did and tries to give it an ending and conclude what everything means whereas the end of this film i won't spoil it too much but it does leave you on an ambiguous ending and my top moment from this film is the starfield sequence i mentioned about the technological developments that went into making this film in a time before computer graphics all of the starfield it's the starfield sequence it just blows my mind every time when dave bowman goes into this i think he's a black hole of some respect or something but he enters this area the starfield and he experiences this massive weird trip. And of course, there's rumours that in the 60s, people went to see this film because it was trippy. Like young people would see it and take drugs and experience it as the biggest trip they'd ever had. I think that was used as mainly a marketing thing. If one person did experience that, it wasn't reported a lot, but it was built upon. That rumour was built upon. And But the Starfield sequence, it's filled of a massive wash of colours. It's a bit like if you watch the opening credits of 1960s to 1970s Doctor Who, where they have all these weird shapes. And I think they use like a mixture of like dyes and like liquids and stuff to create this effect. It's just amazing to watch. It's just a visual masterpiece from that standpoint. And then obviously, the I think they sort of reverse the negative of the film so they make it look different colors so they went they did like helicopter shoots over these grand canyon landscapes and they're inverted into these different colors like some like blue landscapes they're meant to be like the alien surface of jupiter i think at one point but honestly starfield sequence is my top moment from 2001 a space odyssey as well as hal being my favorite character of all time and that's all I have to say on 2001, really. I could go on and on. But yeah, it's a brilliant film. I highly encourage anyone who loves Kubrick to watch it. And if you haven't seen it yet, and anyone who loves early cinema and practical techniques, do watch it. It's brilliant. In at number two on this list, it's surprising I haven't actually put this as my number one pick because I genuinely love this film. Yes, it's an old film. It's from the early 1960s. This was, I think, an early and sort of the last example of the great hollywood musicals it's an adaptation of william shakespeare's romeo and juliet but with a little bit of all for the time anyway a bit of a modern twist released in 1961 academy award winning and i just love it to pieces i remember when i first saw this film when i was i think i want to say it was about 12 possibly 11 12 and i loved it i love so many aspects of it it was a brilliant start to finish production it's a long film but I think it's worth a watch. If you like your musicals, you'll love it. And I've built it up so much. And this film is West Side Story. 
directed, co-directed by Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins. Now, little history before we get into that. If you don't know about this, Jerome Robbins was the original choreographer and director of the original stage production of West Side Story before it became a film. And they got him on board for the film version. And long story short, because he was physically exhausting and going over on the time restraints and the budget for several moments in the film and including choreograph specifically the choreograph sequences where he was wearing actors out to the point of exhaustion he ended up le- being departed from the production so and then robert wise finished things off so it's kind of a film of two halves but ultimately when you watch this film you think it does flow quite smoothly in some respects but there are definitely points in there when you watch behind the scenes material and information on the film and you look at certain sequences that were directed by Jerome Robbins and then the ones that were directed by Robert Wise, you can tell with those in mind. But when you don't know, you just enjoy it. It's a great Hollywood musical, I would say. This film stars Rita Moreno as the fiery Anita, uh, who's a Puerto Rican. So this film is about, it's essentially Romeo and Juliet, as I said, but instead of the Capulets and the Montagues, you get the Jets and the Sharks. So the Jets are like the all-American characters in this and then the sharks of the puerto rican community they're two gangs and they're very much in opposition against each other and you get the romeo character who is tony played by richard beamer and you get the juliet character which is maria played by the wonderful natalie wood but then you get the amazing supporting cast you get riff who is played by russ tamblin the like the leader of the jets then Tony was his second in command, but Riff is the, the main guy of the Jets, especially in the opening of the film. And then George Chakris, who plays Bernardo, the leader of the Sharks. I think both of them are such strong presences on screen. They just look amazing. The costumes in this are just exquisite, to say the least. The colour on this as well, the way it was the photography and the film used, it just looks beautiful. It, especially if you get a good restoration of this, even on like high-definition Blu-ray, just standard high-definition Blu-ray. For me, it looks brilliant. I'm waiting for them to do like a really hardcore restoration on this film because I'm sure it would really look good. So it's set in New York City. It's a visual, very visual film. Brilliantly talented actors. And it's a musical at the end of the day. That's why I like it. It's a, you know, I like a good musical. It's very operatic in some respects because of the Romeo and Juliet edge to it. You've got Tony wanting Maria. So songs, yeah, the songs include like, there's so many. There's Maria, which is tony expressing his love for maria the forbidden love the comical songs g officer krupke which is placed slightly differently in the film i'll do a proper review of west side story sometime soon but and explain that but that's a comical number and for me i think the jet song is a very short very simple song right at the beginning near the beginning of the film is just joyous and even that this film is very strange because you've got gangland violence and such in a musical where they all do like ballet turns and dances and in a way the choreography although like you think why would you put gangs and ballet together it works really strangely well i would say and it helps make the story flow in a strange musical fluidity i would say but like i said the songs in this are they were very popular at the time and most people if you know your films you probably will remember the songs even if you know one you'll remember maria you'll probably remember tonight which essentially is like they make a big new effort sort of production for the film of the song tonight and everything like it makes it into this epic slamming match between all these different groups of the characters all coming together in one big bunch 
for an epic moment during a climax in the middle of the film, shall we say. But the film, ultimately, it's set in New York. Yes, there's bits that are filmed on a sound, like on a back lot, on a sound stage. I would say there are a couple of things that really jump out to me. Specifically, the song Cool, which actually led to several actors passing out from the intense dance rehearsals of the choreography. It got very hot as well, where they were shooting in this garage scene. Uh, If you look up Cool, it's a very well choreographed, very intense piece of musical composition as well as, you know, performance but i would say ultimately my favorite moment from west side story aside from the color and the way it looks and such the cinematography is brilliant and that is shown off by the fact so like i said it's set in new york city and the bits that were shot on location in new york city were just amazing specifically though for the prologue sequence now the prologue sequence is essentially just a piece of music no one really sings in this no one sings at all in the prologue sequence we have a big musical overture where we get this graphic where we see west side story being created as a title and then we fade into this image of the skyline of new york city of manhattan itself and we get these beautifully shot helicopter shots they fly across so well so smoothly across the city skyline we get these bird's eye view compositions of the city so we don't just see the skyline like static and front on we see it from above we've got this god's perspective we're looking down on everything and then eventually it is slowly builds up you hear little sounds it's not much can be heard on the soundtrack and then slowly you hear this little click noise and it zooms in and we zoom in and then we end up in this little park area in the right in the midst of a grungy area of new york city and then we learn that this click is riff riff is clicking and the jets themselves join together and start clicking it's when they start expressing themselves and we start to get to know the characters even though they don't speak we start to get to know them and i think that's why west side story although it's a bit of a slow burner in some respects because the opening is quite slow because we don't meet the characters until at least three minutes in from seeing all these great sights of new york we don't actually hear them speak until at least maybe 10 minutes in and it's i think it's perfectly pitched with the music as well i think the music obviously is made for the film in this case because you have the overture and a theater production but this one was specifically made for it and i just i can't say how much i love this more other sequences as well there's a bit in the prologue where you get the sharks there's you it's an iconic image george chakris raises his legs up they do this ballet pose and it's shot from quite low down and because the cameras were so big back then they had to dig an actual hole in the concrete to be able to shoot up that low and get that desired effect then the camera work on this is insane i think it's classic hollywood moving towards the new hollywood and the grunginess that we'd see in the likes of taxi driver in the 1970s and also the bits that we kind of see towards the end of the 60s and this leads me on to my number one pick which is a 1969 film directed by john slesinger it stars john voigt as a character called joe buck dustin hoffman as a character known as enrico or ratso rizzo and that is the classic film the beginning of the new hollywood movement at the end of the 60s midnight cowboy it's a fairly simple story really to be honest but it's the visuals that really sell this story and it's quite a heartwarming story in some respects very sad in points very uplifting in others essentially so joe buck comes from texas and he decides that he wants to go to new york city and become a sex worker he's a bit naive in a lot of respects because you know he thinks he'll just be able to just get in there and get straight to work but he doesn't realize the hard graft that is required of a sex worker and to become an actual bona fide sex worker in new york city 
and he forms an unlikely friendship with con man extraordinaire and very ill con man at that as well uh, played by dustin hoffman so enrico as he's known but he's mostly referred to as ratso rizzo so ratso this film really explores the dark dingy new york city before it all got nice and shiny and squeaky clean I mean, West Side Story shows a darker side to... There's some darker moments in New York, in like the Bronx and stuff like that. And Fame in like 1980 explores this as well. And Taxi Driver of the 70s, they all explore a very darker version of New York City. And I think, although it's a very relationship-based, it's relating to these two characters, they have this unlikely friendship that ultimately brings the best out in each other. So Ratso offers to be... I don't know, at one point kind of like Joe's agent and anything that Joe earns, it contributes to him staying somewhere. Ultimately, Joe tries to stay in this, he's in this little cramped hotel, I think, a motel type place at one point. He doesn't like it where he is and he ends up leaving eventually because of certain events that happen. But the story ultimately is quite tragic in some respects. A little bit of a spoiler alert for you here, guys. But the film constantly flashes back to Joe as a young kid being raised by his grandmother because his mother abandoned him at a young age. And then we slowly get to see him and his relationship with a girl called Annie. He's sweet on her. It's very clear that the character Joe is very sweet on her. I don't think if it was made today, we wouldn't necessarily make the film like it is as it is presented, unless it was set in this period. But I would say, you know, it just shows you a very weird culture clash between what Joe wants in New York City and wants to get out of being a sex worker in New York City and just living that city life in general and what he actually experiences in reality from what his expectations were. And on the other hand as well, we've also got the flashbacks to his time in Texas before he leaves his hometown and goes to really sort of explore what he wants to be and wants to do in life and we see so like i said annie the girl she's in write-ups of this film she's described as a mentally unstable girl i i you don't always necessarily get that from the get-go because you just see that they're very close that joe and annie are very close and a content warning for you guys the next bit that i'm just going to talk about is about rape and such topics so if you're uncomfortable with that sort of thing that's what's involved in the film so don't watch the film if you're triggered by that kind of thing or if you don't like it being discussed here just skip ahead until you feel comfortable the flashbacks show joe and annie having sex in a car it's late at night it's dark and you get this horrible it's it's actually the mo quite a harrowing scene really to be honest where you see the pair of them naked together and then they get jumped and gang raped by people dressed as cowboys who attack them and in this car park that they're all that they're parked up in at night and it's just a you, you only see bits of this it keeps you keep seeing a recurring image of this throughout the film to sort of anchor to the audience what joe is feeling and that's all i'll say about the rape content is a very disturbing part of the film but ultimately i think genuinely you really do because of that you feel for joe as a character you think he's quite a simpleton and whilst you think he's so naive and he's a bit thick and he's you know a stereotype of a texan man at the same time with the flashbacks to those horrific moments 
with him and his girlfriend Annie, I do think that you get some sort of sympathy for him and you think you see why he's such a gentle soul with everyone, why he's so like loving and caring, especially when you see this relationship grow with Dustin Hoffman's character of Ratso and the way obviously Ratso's very ill, he's basically near death, and Joe ends up caring for him ultimately. And I think that's the tale. This film has been critically acclaimed for its storytelling in the sense that you go into this depth of there's a gay subtext in there between these two men but at the same time it's not really overtly said that they are lovers but there are moments there are tender moments between the two of them which are just so lovely and well played out in terms of the way they're shot the way they're acted it's a brilliant film in terms of performance there's so many moments from this film i love seeing the underground in new york city as well you get to see the underground streets that you wouldn't normally think would be that grimy and dirty i just love seeing an alternative version because i've been to new york city and it's a lot of it is now mostly quite clean nowadays whereas back then it was a little bit more grimy a little bit more dingy and slightly more i don't know worn out the photography of new york city is brilliant i would say one of my favorite scenes as well as the relationship between joe and ratso throughout the entire film I would say one of my favourite scenes all time is the silent artsy segment. In terms of, I love the bits where there is sound and you have dialogue and you you have music and such. But the Andy Warhol style segment, it's kind of, it's meant to be an Andy Warhol party where all these people are at this party. You can't actually hear anything. Nobody can, like, there's really loud music and the only sound you can hear is that music playing in the background. Pulsating beats. And it's all brightly coloured and there's filters on there. It's very trippy and very 60s. So, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey had the Starfield segment, whereas this has the Andy Warhol artsy silence segment. And I think it genuinely is a lovely moment where you see Joe fully integrating into the New York City lifestyle, the lifestyle of the late 60s going into the 1970s, that time of peace and free love. And you really sort of get to appreciate like a different way of life then shall we say but yeah i genuinely love this film it's uh one of my favorites from the 60s it's got a heartwarming ending i'm not going to spoil the ending for you but i think anyone who loves a heartwarming really hard-hitting drama both you know affection and friendship as much as in actual you know a loving romantic relationship it's not a buddy movie it's not a buddy movie by any means but you've got sensibilities of the buddy movie in there but because it's so well told and like there's drama you've got the ailing health of Ratso, you've got the naivety of Joe Buck, all of this mashed together in this New York City bubble then, shall we say, in the end of the 60s, just at the turn of classical Hollywood, as it's starting to like really finish and the new Hollywood movement is starting to come in. So the likes of Easy Rider, that's another one that's literally just been around the same time as well, that are proving that if you go out on location where they went out and they actually discovered that the real streets and on location actually provided much better filming opportunities than any of the backlots ever would have this is a brilliant film from start to finish it's an emotional one but it's a groundbreaking film i think it's well shot well a great story and overall i couldn't recommend it anymore so midnight cowboy and oh, it's got the song as well everybody's talking at me it's at the beginning and the end sort of perfectly underpins the story it's such a free-flowing relaxed song and you know it sums up that period it feels like it sounds like weird to say but it feels very 60s it is paired very well with this depiction of new york city and these two men who ultimately become really good friends even though they back by each other and there's 
tragedy on everybody's part in this film and yeah i can't recommend it anymore and that's all i'm going to say on my top picks so just a quick reminder of our picks for the 1960s episode we have mary poppins 1964 robert stevenson psycho alfred hitchcock 1960 2001 a space odyssey stanley kubrick 1968 west side story robert wise and jerome robbins 1961 and finally midnight cowboy john schlesinger 1969 thank you so much guys for listening to me on this jam-packed episode i know i've talked a lot and i've got a lot in this episode but genuinely there's some crackers in this list that's all i've got to say for this episode really i look forward to seeing you on the next episode with a brand new decade the 1970s and there's so many more films i'm going to go into but for now that's a wrap on take 97 the 1960s edition of the podcast and i shall catch you on the next episode see you later guys